Well, welcome to our Isaiah study. Obviously, I am not with you in person today. My husband and I are celebrating our anniversary at Zion National Park in Utah. We are hiking and eating and hiking and eating and that's basically the kinds of trips that we love. <laughs> so anyway, I'm glad that I could be here with you via the video screen uh, because we have a really amazing section of Isaiah to cover today. It is Isaiah 49 through 55. Um, and probably if there's some portions of Isaiah that you're familiar with, there's probably a few of them in here. So I'm really looking forward to digging into it with you. Well, let me go ahead and open us in a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the, the chapters that we get to feast on today. I thank you for how they so clearly and so beautifully reveal to us uh, the person and work of Jesus. And so I pray as much as we treasure Christ at this very moment, I pray that when we are done with this time together, we would treasure him even more. And that you would just open our eyes to the beauty of, of who he is and uh, just the reality of what he's done for us and how um, just mind-blowing, I mean, beyond even what we could think or imagine is, is what you've accomplished for us in Christ. And so just uh, as I always pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond. If we've learned anything from the book of Isaiah, we have learned that if you don't reveal it, we'll never see it. And so we pray through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would uh, make yourself known to us, make Jesus known to us. And um, I pray that in seeing him more clearly, um, his very life and character would be formed in us more clearly. It is to that end that we study. And um, it is in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. One of the biggest challenges that we all face in our journeys as Christ followers are those seasons when our heart grows cold toward the things of God. And we still love Him. Uh, we have no desire to turn away from Him, but we don't feel all that much for Him. Uh, if you were to pick an emoji for this um, kind of what we might call a spiritual drought or a spiritual dry spell, I think it would be the meh face, just kind of meh. Have you ever felt a little bit meh with God? I definitely have. This can happen for so many different reasons, and there are a variety of ways that we can slowly, slowly but surely nurture our souls back to health. For me, in my experience, and I've had so many of these seasons of spiritual dryness, um, for me, one of the very best ways is to carve out uh, a chunk of time to be alone with the Lord in my Bible, uh, to open it to one of the passages describing the crucifixion, and then to do the work of wrapping my mind and my heart around the cross as if it's the very first time I have ever seen my Savior hanging there, bleeding, suffering, and dying for me. And nothing magical ever happens. I can't even say that I always cry. <laughs> But I have yet to walk away from an encounter at the cross 
unchanged. And there's something uniquely restorative about meditating on the atoning work of Christ for us. And what makes me so excited about this particular lesson is that we get to do that today. We get to soak in what I believe to be the most gorgeous passage on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. And surprise, surprise, it's not in the New Testament. It's in the book of Isaiah. So first I want to start with a little refresher regarding the context, kind of where we've been, where we're headed. At the end of chapter 48, the message is leave Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans. And this is significant because it's the last time that Isaiah makes any kind of reference to the immediate historical context of the original audience who were exiles in Babylon. From here on out, he is going to be looking way ahead to the Messianic age and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises consummated in the second coming of Christ, which coincides with the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth, or in his terms, the new Jerusalem that he has um, kind of been hinting at throughout his prophecy. Now, it's interesting, in 539 BC, Cyrus did liberate the Jews from Babylon. So they had an opportunity to return, but only a small percentage responded and went back home. The majority stayed, and it was a, a little bit lackluster. If you read like um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and some of the, the prophets that prophesied in that period, um, it wasn't the return. It wasn't this grand thing that uh, you might expect. And so there's there's this anticipation of there's got to be more. There's got to be something else. And there, there certainly is. And so Isaiah kind of leaves that immediate historical context behind in 48, 20, and 21. And he shifts his focus to the spiritual reality of people returning not to their literal homeland, but returning to the Lord, who is their true home through his miraculous work of salvation. So we've kind of been going back and forth throughout our entire study, back and forth, back and forth between the historical and the ultimate spiritual realities. And we pretty much get to settle ourselves in the spiritual realities from here on out. There's a few exceptions, but for the most part, um, Isaiah is now looking way, way ahead to the Messianic era and the fulfillment of God's big promises that'll come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, go ahead and open your uh, Bible to chapter 49 of Isaiah. That's where we're going to pick up. And uh, the first part of chapter 49 is the second servant song of Isaiah. And I hope that you are marking those in your Bible. So let's go ahead and dive into that. I'm just going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 49 as soon as I get there. Okay. It says, Coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. 
And he said to me, you are my servant. Now that word servant is one we need to pay attention to. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. All right, well, let's go ahead and stop there. All right, so we have here this mysterious servant figure. He's talking and the entire world is his audience. Now in verse two, we see that he is Yahweh's secret weapon. All right, and the name he's given in verse three is very significant. So we've talked a lot about how Israel was called to be the means by which God would bring salvation to the whole world. We've gone back and we've read those passages where God called them to do that. Now, how had Israel done with that job? Terrible, right? They had not fulfilled the calling that God had placed on their their collective lives. And so either... Either God has to abandon his plan and his promises, or he needs to find a truer and better Israel. And that is what's happening here. He's not going to deny his promises. And so he is going to raise up a truer and better Israel. And so this servant, who he's not given us much information about, um, but we do know at this point is that this servant succeeds where Israel had failed. So let's pick up in verse four. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom, oh, that's verse three, in whom I'll be glorified, verse four. But I myself said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and futility, yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with God, my God. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring and protecting the ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. All right, so in verse four, the servant starts to express some frustration. Things have gone terribly wrong. And this is the first hint that we have of the suffering of the servant that Isaiah is going to pack for us in pretty vivid detail a little later on. Now take a look at how the servant responds to the suffering. He says in verse four, yet... Yet my vindication is with the Lord. And so he responds with this this trust. He rests in God's promise to vindicate, which is that is exactly what, what Israel has been called to do over and over and over and has failed to do over and over and over. Now we also see that the servant has a twofold mission. All right, so the middle of verse five, mission number, or the first part of the mission is to bring Jacob back to him. So that's referencing the the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, but that's not enough. God said that's 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 not that's not a big enough plan. That's not a big enough mission. In verse 6, he says the second part of the mission is to bring the remnant from the whole world back to him. And this should make us link all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. When God promised Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation, and it is through your descendants that 
all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so we have this worldwide vision that Isaiah is constantly giving us. We see it so beautifully there. All right, let's pick up in verse 7. It says, this is what the Lord, the Redeemer, we've seen that word before, of Israel, his Holy One says, to one who is despised, to one abhorred by the people, to a servant of rulers, kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. And this is what the Lord says. He's still talking to the servant here. I will answer you in the time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land, to make them possess the desolate inheritances, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways, and their pastures will be on the barren heights. They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. I will make all my mountains into a road and my highways will be raised up. See, these things will come from far away, from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth, rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts for the Lord has comforted his people. Do you remember chapter 40? started with comfort, comfort, right? Well, he, he has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted one. All right, so a new theme is introduced here. All right, we see in um, the beginning of this section I just read that the servant will be rejected, and it will appear as though his mission has failed. And yet this quote-unquote failure will be the means by which God is going to bring salvation to the entire world. So again, Isaiah is giving us lots of hints as to what he has for us in the chapters to come. Now, what is Zion's response to this beautiful, beautiful um, prophecy that we've been given here? Well, verse 14, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. And so Zion's response, Jerusalem's response, the response of the people is not possible. There's there's no way. And this is exactly what we saw back in chapter 40, verse 27. If you want to flip there real quick, um, he says, Jacob, why do you say? And Israel, why do you assert? My way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God. So that's how they felt from their perspective as exiles living in Babylon. They're looking at all this and they're thinking, no, that's, that's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. And really, chapters 41 through 47 were entirely taken up with God, proving himself to be faithful to his covenant. So in these words here, God's kind of continuing to do the same thing. He's continuing to remind them, I have not forgotten you. I am carrying my plan forward. All right, it may not look like it, but I am. Look at what he says, such beautiful words in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Even if these forget, yet I will not forget you. 
Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You, your builders hurry. Those who destroy and devastate you will leave you. Look up and look around. They all gather together. They will come to you as I live, says the Lord. This is the Lord's declaration. You will wear all your children as jewelry and you will put them on as a bride does. And put them, uh, verse 19, for your waste and desolate places and your land marked by ruins will now be indeed too small for the inhabitants and those who swallow you up will be far away. Yet as you listen, the children that you have been deprived of will say, this place is too small for me. Make room for me so that I may settle. And then you will say within yourself, who, who fathered these for me? I was deprived of my children and unable to conceive, exiled and wandering. But who brought them up? See, I was left by myself, but these, where did they come from? This is what the Lord God says. Look, I will lift up my hand to the nations and I will raise my banner to the peoples and they will bring your sons and daughters in their arms and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders and kings will be your guardians and their queens, your nursing mothers, and they will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust at your feet. And then you will know that I am the Lord Those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. Now, Isaiah would not have had the crucifixion in mind when he wrote verse 16, where it says, Look, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Uh, But I think we most certainly can and should have the crucifixion in mind. Now, notice the focus on the abundance of children. There are so many children that they'll need a bigger place. And they ask, where did these children come from? And the answer is the nations. They come from the nations. You know that Father Abraham song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. You right arm, Father Abraham, right? That song is actually really, I mean really important. (laughs) We think of biblical theology and the big storyline of the Bible. I am one of them, and so are you. Now, are we of Jewish descent? I'm not. We're, We're Gentiles, and yet we are part of the children that are brought in, that are brought in, and 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 Israel's looking around saying, where did all these kids come from? And God's saying, I, I brought them from the nations. These, this is the promise to Abraham coming um, to fulfillment. All right, let's look at uh, the question in verse 24. It says, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or captives of a tyrant be delivered? Now, what they're saying is, can a people who have been exiled as they have been exiled ever recover? Can you ever recover from exile? And the right answer from every imaginable human vantage point is a big, fat no. That never happened. Exile is akin to the death of a nation. But look at verses 25 and 26. He says, for this is what the Lord says, even the captives of a mighty man will be taken and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet 
wine. Then all humanity, this is a repeated phrase, then all humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so again, nobody would believe that an exiled nation could ever recover. But in light of who God is, And in light of what he has promised to do, the answer to that question, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? It is actually a big fat yes. And God is saying, watch me do it on a much bigger scale than you could ever, ever imagine. And so he's just like building, he's continually building. All right, well, let's move into chapter 50. God reminds them why they experienced the exile. Says, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's divorce certificate that I used to send her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Look, you were sold for your iniquities, and your mother was sent away because of your transgressions. Why was no one there when I came? Why was no one there? Why was no one to answer when I called? Is my arm too weak to redeem? Or do I have no power to rescue? Look, I dry up the sea by my rebuke. I turn the rivers into a wilderness. Their fish rot because of lack of water and die of thirst. I dress the heavens in black and make sackcloth their covering. So he's reminding them here they were not suffering because of a flaw in God. He had showed up. He had called. He had offered to save them and nobody cared. It was their own rebellion that led them to exile. And in stark contrast to the spiritually deaf and blind people of Israel who refused to listen to God when he showed up, take a look at verse 4. We have another servant song. The Lord God has given me a tongue of those who are instructed to know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakens me each morning. He awakens my ear to listen like those being instructed. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. Do you see the contrast? This is another servant song. This servant is very different than Israel as a servant, right? So this is the third servant song of Isaiah. Let's go ahead and read on. It says, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near. He who will contend with me. Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near me. In truth, the Lord God will help help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them will wear out like a garment. A moth will devour them. Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. 
All right, so that suffering motif that was hinted at in chapter 49, verse 7, is developed a little more. So we're, we're building, we're building up to that. And the focus here is the servant's confidence in Yahweh in spite of the suffering. He was able to surrender to the suffering because he wholeheartedly believed that God would help him, defend him, and vindicate him. And in your homework this week, I, um, I had you consider how Christ, in his darkest moment there in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he might have clung to these verses as he wrestled with the realities of his own suffering. I also had you read the words of Paul toward the end of Romans 8. There's echoes of this passage. It's obvious that Paul, in his suffering, drew a great deal of encouragement and comfort from the servant's confidence that God would come through. And if Paul did it, I think we should do it too. I mean, it's just this amazing, like, yes, there's suffering. And yes, there's, and the crazy thing is the servant didn't deserve any of his. But God, but God will deliver and God protects and God saves. As we move on into uh, verse 10, all right, we have, we have an exhortation. All right, again, I'll read it again. Who among you fears the Lord? And listens to his servant, who among you walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. So we see there that the proper way to respond to the servant is to act like him. He is a listener. He listens to God and he trusts God. And we too are to be people who listen and trust. Now in verse 11, we're presented with the alternative to listening and trusting. Look at it. Verse 11. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with torches, walk in the light of your fire and of the torches you have lit. This is what you'll get from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. Now, notice from these two verses, 10 and 11, the people who trust and wait in darkness for the Lord's light to dawn are contrasted with people who, let's say, go to the dollar store and they buy their own cheap flashlights. All right. They they come up with their own way to escape the darkness. And what he's saying is they may have light now, but the light they have will eventually go out and they will lie in the place of torment. So here's the options. You wait in darkness for a little while in order to enjoy light forever, or you make your own light now and suffer in darkness and torment forever. Those are the two options. And more and more as we go through, you're going to see Isaiah presenting these very, just two, just two paths, two options, two types of people. Um, And it's going to become, the distinction's going to become sharper and sharper. Well, in chapter 51, he starts to speak to the people who choose to wait on the Lord. He's talking to the faithful remnant, the ones who don't go to the dollar store, buy their own flashlights, but actually wait. They listen and they trust and they believe that the light's going to come and it's going to come um, through the Lord, their their Savior. All right, look at uh, 51 verse 1. It says, listen to me. 
You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you. When I called him, he was only one. I blessed him and made him many. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and melodious song. This is new creation imagery, like out the wazoo. It's it's so beautiful. Um, First, I want you to notice the mounting excitement, the the, the pace of, of the whole um, poem is, is getting quicker. Intensity is building. Um, this text is working toward a very distinct climax. Now, what the people are called to do here is to reflect on their history, to reflect on the fact that the entire nation started with two people who in their younger years were never able to conceive children, who are now way too old, even if they had been able to have children back then, they definitely couldn't now. <laughs> And they're the two that God's going to use to make this great nation. And God's reminding them that it wasn't a problem for him. It wasn't a problem for him. And he wants his people to be comforted by that. He wants them to look back um, and to remember this great miracle that that God did in um, even the the, the creation, the formation of the nation of Israel. All right, look at verse 4. He says, pay attention. Pay attention to me, my people. And listen to me, my nation, for instruction will come from me, come from me, and my justice for a light to the nations. I will bring it about quickly. My righteousness is near, my salvation appears, and my arms will bring justice to the nations. The coast and islands will put their hope in me, and they and they will look to my strength. Look up to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens will vanish like the smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die like gnats. But my salvation will last forever and my righteousness will never be shattered. Listen to me. See the repetition of that? Listen, listen, listen. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my instruction, Do not fear the disgrace of men and do not be shattered by their taunts for moths will devour them like a garment and worms will eat them like wood. But my righteousness will last forever and my salvation to all generations. All right. Those buts are what stand out, right? You have that in verse six, you have, but my salvation will last forever. Verse eight, but my righteousness will last forever. And I'll tell you, every generation of believers ever, including you and including me, needs this reminder that all, everything around us, everything, everything is temporary. But there are some spiritual realities, some eternal realities that are going to last forever. And one of them is God's salvation, (laughs) his righteousness, right? Such an important reminder. All right. In verse 9, the remnant responds. It says, wake up, wake up, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Wake up as in days past, as in generations long ago. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces? Rahab is the word Egypt. 
um, who pierced the sea monster? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the seedbed into a road for the redeemed to pass over? All right, it's talking about the the dividing of, of the Red Sea, right? Verse 11, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. And gladness will overtake them and sorrows and sighing will flee. All right, so what they're doing here is they're appealing to God's past faithfulness, specifically his faithfulness displayed in the Exodus, and they're praying for God to do it again. And they're looking ahead with confident expectation in verse 11 that he will do it again. Now, in verse 9, it's kind of interesting. They had told God to wake up. In fact, they said, wake up, wake up. (laughs) Said it twice. All right, so they had told God to wake up. Now, does God sleep? No. He does not sleep. And as the chapter continues, he basically says to them, I've been awake the whole time. Y'all are the ones that need to wake up. You need to wake up to what I have been and am and will be doing. Verse 17, this is what he says. He says, wake yourself. Wake yourself up. Stand up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk the cup of his fury from the Lord's hand, you who have drunk the goblet to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger, there is no one to guide her among all the children she has raised. There is no one to take hold of her hand among all the offspring she has brought up. Um, Let's see. These two things have happened to you, devastation and destruction. Famine and sword. Who will grieve for you and how can I comfort you? Your children have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the Lord's fury, the rebuke of your God. So listen to this, suffering and drunken one, but not with wine. They're suffering. They're drunken with the the wrath, the cup of wrath, right? This is what your Lord says. The Lord, even your God who defends his people, look. I have removed from your hand the cup that causes staggering, the goblet, the cup of my fury. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, lie down so we can walk over you. You made your back like the ground and like a street for those to walk on it. Somehow, and we're not given the information yet, Somehow, during their drunken stupor, drunk on the very wrath of God, the Lord acted for the helpless. And the wrath so well deserved is now taken away. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And we're left reading this like, well, how, how, how? And Isaiah says, I'm going to get to that. All right. And we're, we're going to get to that today. Chapter 52. Wake up, wake up, put on your strength, Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer enter you. Stand up, shake the dust off yourself. Take your seat, Jerusalem. Remove the bonds from your neck, captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed. There's that word again, without silver. For this is what the Lord God says. At, my, at first, my people went down to Egypt to reside there. Then Assyria oppressed them without cause. So now, what I, so now what I have here, this is the Lord's declaration, that my people are taken away for nothing. It's rulers wail 
This is the Lord's declaration. And my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, they will know on that day that I am he who says, here I am. Now I want to talk about those beautiful garments there in verse 1. Those are an allusion to Exodus 28.2 that says the high priestly garments were for glory and for beauty. And so we're to have that royal, that priestly motif in our minds when we read that. Now, back in Exodus 19, God had called his people to be a kingdom of priests. And that is, of course, something they never actually lived up to. But again, while Zion is sleeping, something miraculous happens and she wakes up to find these new priestly garments all laid out for her expressing a new status as one who is holy and set apart for the Lord's use. Again, we think in ourselves to ourselves, well, how? How did, that, how did that transformation take place? And again, Isaiah is about to get to that. Verse 7, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, shouting for joy together for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful. Rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now the clear message again of chapter 40 is that God is returning to Zion. It's about to happen. The herald is running to us with this message and the behold your God of chapter 40 has become your God reigns. Your God reigns. Something happens to make the people shout. It's true. It's true. God really is king. And what is that? What is that event? What is that something? Again, how is this happening? How is God bringing this to pass? We have to keep reading. Verse 11, leave, leave, go out from here. Do not touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, for you will not leave in a hurry and you will not have to take flight because the Lord is going before you and the God of Israel is your rear guard. So we have a new exodus described here. That's what he's pulling from. Lots of Exodus imagery. And the big difference is you remember when the people left Egypt, they had to leave in a hurry. They were frantically running um, because the Egyptians were at their heels, right? They were running from the enemy, but here they don't have to do that. He's saying, you don't have to do that because God has hedged them in. They are completely surrounded by God's saving, uh, preserving presence. And that brings us, finally, to the fourth servant song of Isaiah, and perhaps the very worst chapter division in the entire Bible. It would make a lot more sense if chapter 53 started there at verse 13, um, but it doesn't, so we're just going to have to deal with it. But verse 13 definitely introduces something new. 
Now, I want to look back on where what we've read so far and the questions that have been raised. Just give you a little recap. All right, so we know the wrath of God has been removed, but how? I mean, God can't just take wrath away and still be a just, righteous God. He can't be like, eh, no big deal. <laughs> it just isn't, not going to work. In 52 verse 1, Zion is called to enter into holiness because redemption has been accomplished. And again, the question is, all right, that's great, but how? How has that redemption been accomplished? In 52, 11, and 12, the people are called to a new exodus, but no definitive act of deliverance is described. It's obvious something much bigger than the fall of Babylon is in view. So what is that event? What is that thing? 52.3 says that they will be redeemed without silver. How then will they be redeemed? What is the payment? Isaiah has been intentionally throwing these ideas out there. He's kind of been baiting us a little bit. He's been withholding any explanations for the express purpose of building suspense and anticipation. And all of these questions are finally answered for us in this fourth servant song. So let's go ahead and take a look. Verse 13, see, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted and greatly exalted. It's a lot like the vision from Isaiah 6, isn't it? Verse 14, just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for they will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. All right, so these verses here are kind of a summary or a preview of what's to come in the rest of the poem. And it starts with, very appropriately, starts with the success and the exaltation of the servant, but it clues us into the fact that the means by which he attains that glory and power and position is radically different than the means by which every other human has ever sought to attain glory and power and position. This servant, this king, will succeed through profound suffering. And the rest of the passage fills that in in a lot more detail. Now, in 53.1, so we're about to move into the group, um, there's a group called We. We're just going to call them the group called We, begins to tell the story of the servant. And they say that at first, he appeared to be an ordinary, God-forsaken, insignificant lowlife rejected by the people. Absolutely nothing about him that looked impressive or important. So look at 53.1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, we see that phrase a lot, it's referring to the servant, all right? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. So I want us to go back to that very first question the we asks. It says, who has believed what we have heard? 
Well, based on every human power of observation, nobody would have believed that this servant was anything special. Nobody. And that's why we have the second question where he says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And of course, the arm of the Lord, again, it's referring both to Yahweh and the servant. And, and the reality is it wouldn't have been revealed to anybody if God didn't make it known, right? This reality of the servant is made known through divine revelation or he cannot be known at all. In other words, nobody's going to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ and on their own discern that he is the true king of the world. Nobody, nobody. <laughs> God's got to reveal it. God's got to reveal it to people. You cannot know the servant unless God enables you to know the servant because this whole plan of God, it's such a scandal. <laughs> it's such a radical reversal of expectations, such an unexpected means of attaining glory, a totally radically new definition of power. It is literally unbelievable unless God opens your eyes of faith. Well, as the poem continues, the we acknowledges that they were wrong to doubt him. He's not just some deadbeat lowlife. His suffering was significant. His suffering was, in fact, a substitution. Look at verse 4. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of or for our rebellion. He was crushed because of or for our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So the we has come to understand and believe that the servant suffered in their place, bearing the penalty of their sin, the full horror and weight of what had led to their exile now falls on him. And verse six is straight out of Leviticus 16. This is day of atonement imagery. And if we had an extra hour, Boy, would I love to, to, walk through, to walk through that chapter. All right, well, Israel's rejection of the servant leads to verses 7 through 11. Take a look. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And he was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. All right, so this is a total injustice. It's a total injustice. But there's an emphasis here on the servant's willingness and his submission. It harkens back to chapter 50, verse 7, where it says, I have set my face like a flint. <laughs> Everyone observing would have thought, he's a goner. 
He's a goner. He died. He died. But the rest of the chapter makes it crystal clear that this was not just a human plot. The death of the servant was a divine strategy. All right, look at verse 10. Yet, that is a big old yet, yet, the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, big Bible word, that's a hyperlink word, right? He will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. All right, so the most obvious truth we glean from this is that the servant doesn't stay dead. (laughs) Now, the people perceived failure. The point here is that the suffering and death of the servant was the complete opposite of failure. This is the ultimate success story. He succeeded in accomplishing the Lord's pleasure. He succeeded in being a guilt offering, providing atonement for their evil. He succeeded in justifying many by taking their iniquities on himself and pronouncing them righteous. He succeeded in being a substitute and a mediator so that the rebels might experience redemption. And by the way, this right here is the seedbed of Pauline theology. All those New Testament letters you love, Romans, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, they all have deep, deep roots in the soil of Isaiah 53. Verse 11, in particular, is one of the fullest statements of atonement ever written, ever. Now remember back in 52.7, when the herald declares, Your God reigns. (laughs) And we thought to ourselves, how? How does he reign? Like, what does he do? Chapter 53 is our answer. He dies. He suffers. He takes on your sin and my sin. Such a crazy answer. It's such a crazy answer. Now we're going to skip ahead to chapter 55, and I want to look at what the response should be. We actually have a couple invitations that are given for the people who might believe in the servant, who would place their faith in his completed work. And what are we to do? What are we to do in response to this one who has come and who has taken our place and suffered and died and bled for us and then has has been resurrected to reign? Verse, chapter 55, verse one. Here's the invitation number one. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water 
And you, without silver, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk, without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food? And your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live, and I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindness of David. So in light of what the servant has accomplished, invitation number one is to come and feast. Come and feast. And then look at verses six and seven. This is the next invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion to him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. So in light of what the servant has accomplished, invitation number two is to walk continually in repentance and faith. Come and feast and then walk in repentance and faith. Playing off the imagery of the first invitation, I want to close with an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia series. It's from the Silver Chair book. And if you want to follow along, it's actually in the conclusion of your workbook. So it's uh, page 125 at the very end. The birds had ceased singing and there was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment. And sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Because just on this side of the stream lay the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Uh, May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Jill said. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. 
The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls? She asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Oh, I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream.